I mean, I was excited about the Elon Musk takeover even before I got back. I was just thrilled at at witnessing the meltdown online. I was really enjoying the panicking and the flouncing. Like, we'll have to start a new social media platform. It's like, good luck. Like, we tried that so hard for the past four years. I mean, so many of these people on Twitter, the blue ticks, as you called them, you know, they would be complete unknowns if not for Twitter. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Megan Murphy. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's It's been a long time since you and I last spoke, and I feel like a lot has happened. Most notably, I think, your return to Twitter. I, I find this story fascinating from beginning to end, and I would like to talk about it for a little bit. So you, many listeners will know that you were one of the first feminists to be thrown off Twitter, to be banished from uh, that social media platform for the speech crime of misgendering someone, i.e. you used male pronouns to refer to a male person who fantasizes that he's actually a woman. And your case became a bit of a cause celeb amongst certain free speech activists and particularly amongst feminists who want the right to talk about biological sex. At one point, you even launched a court case against Twitter to try and have your account reinstated. And it looked for a long time like there was no hope. There was no way Megan Murphy, the turf, the witch, was ever going to get back on Twitter. And now you're back on Twitter, courtesy of... Elon Musk's freedom of speech rampage, as we might refer to it, and also courtesy of your friend Joe Rogan, who put in a good word for you, you're actually back on that platform. So I want to start off by asking you, were you surprised when you got back on? How does it feel to be back in Twitter after all these years? It feels amazing. I miss Twitter so much. (laughs) (laughs) I am not and never have been one of those people who hated Twitter. I always loved Twitter and I was genuinely very sad when they banned me. Um, Not just because it has had an immense impact on my work. Um, You know, I'm fully independent. I work for myself. I do everything myself. I produce my own writing. I produce my own podcast. I run my own website. You know, like there's no other, uh, you know, company that I work for. Um, So it's sort of my job, my responsibility to promote my work, to contact interviewees, um, to engage with my audience, et cetera, et cetera. So it really was devastating to me, which I know sounds silly to some people who might think, you know, it's just social media, who cares? But when you work in media, it matters a lot. It's not just fun, although I don't, I do find Twitter fun. Um, You know, Twitter is, as far as I'm concerned, like the best place for trolling and jokes, which I enjoy. (laughs) Um, As well as, you know, for participating in the conversation. This is, for better or for worse, maybe for worse, the public square. And I can't believe it was four years. You know, it was the end of 2018 that I was banned and I fought and fought and fought in every way that I possibly could. You know, I appealed probably like a dozen times. Um, Most of my appeals were ignored some, I, I received a response that, you know, was just a form response that reiterated the initial form response that I got, which was that I had been banned for 
breaking Twitter rules or banned for hateful conduct. They never, ever, ever specified which rule I broke. You know, I can guess. <laughs> um, I know what 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 the Twitter executives have said about me publicly, which were lies. Um, but they said that I was harassing trans people on Twitter, which is not true. Um, and of course the day that I was banned from Twitter, which was, it was a Friday night. I think it was, it was the end of November. It was Friday night. And just if a couple hours after I was banned, after I received this email saying that I was permanently banned, Pink News published an article saying that Twitter had implemented a new rule against dead naming and misgendering. So to me, you know, it was obvious what I was being taken down for from the get-go because they were going after my tweets questioning gender identity ideology. Again, really not saying anything offensive per se, which is not to say that I've never said anything rude or offensive <laughs> on Twitter. I mean, I, I'm not out there just to be nice all the time, I suppose. But, you know, the, the tweets that they went after were not egregious in any way at all. Um, I was pretty surprised to get back. I had hoped that my Twitter account would be reinstated once Elon Musk took over um, and appealed a couple times after he took over in the hopes that their systems would change, um, their processes would change. Um, but on some level I had kind of given up mm. <laughs> and I had, you know, I had rebuilt from, from the bottom up in some ways. Um, when I was banned from Twitter, I had to like start a public Instagram account and start a public Facebook page mm. and get a YouTube channel going. I hadn't done any of that before. I had really mostly just used Twitter and, and Facebook a little bit, but, but not really. I don't like Facebook. Um, and I mean, I didn't want to spend all my time on social media. I want to do my work. I don't want to be on, you know, five different social media platforms plugging away. Um, but I had managed to build back up again. Um, the fact that I was able to sort of rebuild an audience in all these new places from scratch had to do in part with, I mean, just, you know, I worked. <laughs> I worked a lot, but um, I mean, I always worked a lot. But because I was banned... You know, in some ways it could be considered a blessing in disguise, although I didn't like it in any way, but it did get a lot of media attention. Um, it did get into these debates around free speech and, you know, what social media is for um, and how social media shapes the public conversation, how social media shapes politics, um, how social media shapes ideology and, and really can manipulate public perception on, on issues. And thanks to people like Joe Rogan, you know, who did, you know, he advocated for me for a mm -hmm. long time and then going on, I mean, he has the biggest platform in the entire world. So yeah. going on his show has a major impact, obviously on visibility. I think that's a, a very good summary of um, what's happened. I want to talk a little bit about just how serious your case was. And in my mind, I remember reading about it all those four years ago and, and subsequently and, and writing about it sometimes as well, because I thought it was really striking because up until that point, really, the discussion had primarily been around banning 
alt-right accounts and far-right accounts and people who are genuinely hateful or say things that most people would consider to be pretty repulsive or or wrong or, or immoral. By the way, I don't think those people should be banned either, but that was where the discussion w- really was. And then we had your case where we had a feminist uh, a left-leaning feminist, although we'll come on to in a moment who's who's left-wing, who's right-wing and what all that stuff means these days. But you, we had someone like you being taken off for criticising one man in particular, Jonathan Yaniv, who also goes by the name Jessica Yaniv, who's a pretty terrible character in Canada who was trying to pressure largely immigrant beauticians to wax his testicles, essentially, and then taking them to a human rights tribunal when they refused to do so. And one of the, at least one of the reasons that you were uh, uh, marked out as a bad person on Twitter who should be censored is because you referred to Jonathan Yaniv as him. Um, your famous tweet where you said, men aren't women, though, that's one of the tweets that you were really mm-hmm. harangued for. And I love the fact that your first tweet upon your return to Twitter was the exact same, men aren't women, though. Um, <laughs> that's great. But isn't it just extraordinary and really telling about the crazy politics of the Twitter executive board that you could have a situation where a rational feminist like yourself was being censored, at least in part, for daring to offend a pretty dreadful man who was openly harassing immigrant women. Right. I mean, the whole thing would be insane as far as I'm concerned. Either way, even if this individual in question weren't this really horrible predator, you know, he was predating on women and allegedly on girls. Um, You know, he was trying to extort money out of these immigrant women, these aestheticians who were working out of their homes. Um, It was a grift. It was a grift. I mean, I don't believe there's such a thing as a trans person. I don't think that the trans concept is coherent. I don't think that you can be neither male or female. I don't think you can change sex. But that aside... As you know, he was contacting these aestheticians. I'm I'm certain that he chose these individuals in particular to target. He wasn't contacting, um, you know, salons that were sort of fancy and and had more money. Um, he was contacting immigrant women who were, ha- you know, English as a second language. Um, particularly vulnerable, marginalized women working out of their homes who definitely would not want a naked man Mm. in their space Mm. alone with them. Um, He was asking them to wax his balls. He was asking for a Brazilian bikini wax. And when they said no, realizing that he was male, which he knew would happen, um, you know, he still had his male face all over his social media profiles. He was in no way even attempting at that time (laughs) to look like a woman. I'm saying this in quotations. Um, When they said no, he threatened to sue them for discrimination. Um, And I think some of them did kind of pay him some money, as I have heard um, from some of their lawyers and and what and so on and so forth. Um, And the rest of them, he he dragged through this human rights tribunal, which was, as I'm sure anyone can imagine, very stressful and costly. Some of these women lost their businesses. And this is the guy that I was supposedly, I, I, that I was banned for life until Elon and, 
and Joe <laughs> lended me a helping hand. Um, I was banned for life for calling this guy he. And he, at that time, was using the pronouns he in various places online. Like, he was misgendering himself. <laughs> it was genuinely crazy. And as I say, one of the most striking cases of censorship. And I, I wanted to, just to bring it on to the broader discussion about Twitter and freedom of speech. I think um, you mentioned earlier how you're very happy to be back on Twitter. And when you were on it originally, pre-2018, it was incredibly useful for you as a writer, as someone who wanted to get your ideas around and your articles around. It's It's a very useful tool. One thing that I have found quite sinister since Elon Musk took over is in the response to Elon Musk taking over is you have all these um, blue tick accounts who for many years were saying, look, people like Megan Murphy aren't actually being censored. They're just being taken off a privately owned platform. They can go somewhere else. They can use a different platform. They could maybe even create their own platform. That was one of the big rallying cries for quite some time. Uh, and, And there was this very slippery, disingenuous claim that if you're thrown off Twitter, it's not really censorship. It doesn't really hurt you. You can still speak your mind. But what I found since Musk took over, and these people are really panicking about Twitter going down or collapsing, is now lots of them are saying the precise opposite of that. They're saying, look, we don't want to lose Twitter. It's so important to us. This is how I became a well-known person. This is how I got on a TV show or, or had someone read a piece that I wrote. So they were essentially lying for all those years when they were saying Twitter's not important, it's just a private company and you follow the rules or else you go somewhere else. That that element of it, I think, has been quite sinister because at root, weren't a lot of these people who were campaigning for the censorship of people like you and, and others as well, they, were, they knew what they were doing, didn't they? They knew that they were protecting their own space and their own ideology from those who would dare to intrude on it and raise different questions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that these people are completely disingenuous. And as you say, they were lying. I mean, to pretend that Twitter is no big deal, but then to bank your entire identity and uh, voice and and career on Twitter at the same time is completely disingenuous. I mean, so many of these people on Twitter, the blue ticks, as you called them, um, you know, they would be complete unknowns if not for Twitter. You know, there's a ton of people who appear to be very powerful in terms of the public conversation who aren't really doing much beyond tweeting, Mm -hmm. you know, who managed to build up a huge, massive following, um, which is, it it is powerful. You know, the, the thing that's different about Twitter versus the other social media platforms is that your words can travel so far in an instant. Um, and the other, other places like Instagram and Facebook don't really function in that same way. Um, and you know, there's also, there is a monetary value attached, um, which I'm sure the supposed anti-capitalists don't want to acknowledge, although of course they're not anti-capitalist in any (laughs) way at all. Um, but the leftists who pretend to be, you know, socialist, uh, et cetera, et cetera, anti-corporation, um, I mean, first of all, it takes a lot of work to build up a big following on Twitter. And second of all, that's how you get opportunities nowadays in many ways, which is, I think, a bit unfortunate. Um, 
But I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know, as well as anyone, you know, if you're a writer, um, you're much more likely to be able to publish your work, to publish articles if the places that you're, you're freelancing for or writing for know that they'll get mm. clicks. You know, that's, that's valuable. Now we work online for the most part and that's, that's how things work. So it's, it's really, and as you say, as soon as Elon Musk took over and they all started panicking that the, the platform would, would disappear or maybe turn into something where they didn't have the same kind of power and control. Um, they started tweeting about how, you know, this is my, this is my whole career. You know, I've worked all these years to build up this following and everything could just disappear in a second. And I was like, Oh, oh, really? (laughs) Tell me about it. Tell me about it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, like it's just, it's unbelievable. That really was an an incredible insight into how their minds work and into just the blasé authoritarianism that they have been engaged in for so many years where they knew perfectly well that expelling someone from Twitter would have quite severe consequences for their ability to make a living, their ability to make an impact. They they knew that all along. It's so clear now. Um, Just sticking with the Twitter thing for a moment, um, I wanted to get your view on the broader Musk era. I mean, obviously you've benefited uh, directly from the Musk era already. I'm enjoying watching it. I think the meltdown that people are having is just very entertaining and very revealing. They they can't abide the the fact that there will be more freedom of speech on Twitter because they were so invested in, in the structures of censorship that had been built up over the past few years. And they benefited from those structures of censorship too, particularly on the trans issue, in fact. Uh, a lot of trans activists um, knew that on Twitter they could very easily have women in particular just instantly banned by mass reporting them for telling biological truths. And they exploited that system to to censor women in a way that I think was very authoritarian and often quite misogynistic as well. But in relation to the Musk era, I'm guessing you think this is a pretty good thing in terms of his reinstatement of an element of freedom of speech and his willingness to take a risk in terms of allowing different voices on Twitter. But alongside that, do you think there's a danger that we find ourselves once again relying on a powerful billionaire to give us the right to speak freely when it ought to be a right that we enjoy simply by being adults in in free societies? Yeah, I mean, I was excited about the Elon Musk takeover even before I got back. I was Mm. just thrilled at at witnessing the meltdown online. Um, (laughs) um, I was, I was really enjoying the panicking and the flouncing and these people now trying to go off to Mastodon or whatever, like we'll have to start a new social media platform. It's like, good luck. Like we tried that so hard for the past four years. Unfortunately, like I wish it did work because I think that more platforms would be useful, but it just doesn't seem to None of them seem to take off in the way that Twitter has, of course. Um, I mean, I believe that Elon Musk really does care about and value free speech. Mm. Um, and so I trust <laughs> this billionaire more than <laughs> than others, perhaps. Um, but of course, you're right. And I think that a lesson that I hope that we have learned and that I've learned is to not, you know, put all of our 
money in one place, you know, not to bank on, on this one platform for our speech. I hope, although I, I don't know that this will play out, I hope that we've also learned how important it is to protect free speech. I mean, one of the things that I learned from my banning, you know, because I was, I was banned from Twitter, I was connected with people like you, for example. Um, and others who had been advocating for free speech for a long time, um, Toby Young, um, people on the right who were advocating for free speech for a long time, you know, people like Ben Shapiro, um, and people who I really hadn't engaged with much mm. prior. And, you know, I think that at that time I had sort of started to defend free speech more strongly than I had in the past. Um, I mean, I hate to admit it, but it just wasn't something I really thought about very much. Um, yeah. I don't think Canadians do, you know, I'm <laughs> Canadian. I don't, I don't live in Canada anymore, um, but I lived there for 40 years and free speech is not defended in Canada the way that it is in America. We don't seem to understand how pivotal it is, which is really dangerous, um, especially now that we're dealing with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is who is going after free speech. Um, he's working to pass a bill, Bill C-11, right now. He's been trying to push this bill through for, I think, a, a year or two now, Um that would curb so-called online hate speech. Um, he's mm -hmm. trying to force platforms like YouTube, for example, to control Canadian content and take down content that doesn't fall in line with, you know, his political ideology, essentially, although he doesn't frame it in that way, but that's, that's the truth. Um, and I, I'm grateful that I learned this lesson, although I wish that I, had learned it much earlier in my life. Um, and so since my banning, I've really switched my focus in terms of politics to the fight for free speech and to try to show people that free speech is for everyone. You know, I, I you hear people saying things like, I support free speech, but not <laughs> racist speech or not um, classist speech or not misogynist speech. And it's like, no, that's, that's not how it works. Yeah. Like it's everything. It's yeah. everything, you know, it, except for, I think, overt threats of, of violence and mm -hmm. genocide. Um, I think that everything else goes and I think we just have to deal with that. You know, society is messy. People are messy. And, and I think that's healthier than the alternative, which would be a dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, you'd hope people would understand why, censorship and why controlling speech in this way, you know, for political purposes is dangerous, but so many people don't seem to get it. I think actually quite a few people have come around to the case for freedom of speech as a result of the trans issue and, and the open censorship that has been taking place of feminists in particular who dare to raise points about this new ideology and, and the, the threat that it poses to uh, women, to gay people, to children. And I think uh, quite a few feminists in the UK as well, who weren't always particularly favourable towards freedom of speech, I must say, have uh, discovered that it is actually a, the, the most important principle in a, in a democratic society. And, and here in the UK, as you've just described in Canada, we also sadly don't take freedom of speech as seriously as they do in the United States. 
Um, we also have a bill going through the online safety bill, which would mm. make certain speech more difficult to, to carry out on the internet. We also have non-crime hate incidents where people can be visited by the police, uh, even if they haven't committed a crime, but have, have said something supposedly hateful. And of course, that has involved visiting feminists who dare to refer to men as men and so on. Um, so we are in a pretty bad position still in terms of censorship, but I do think more people are, are waking up to that. On that issue, I wanted to ask you about, about the left and mm. the left's attitude to these things, because one thing that I've been noticing over the past two decades, really, is that sadly, the left is often at the forefront of arguing for censorship these days. And sometimes the right is at the forefront of making, at least partially making the case for freedom of speech, which is a bit of a turnaround from the past and, and the, from sections of the 20th century, when it was very often the right who would demand the censorship of certain forms of art, certain forms of political behavior, and the left tended to be a bit more countercultural, a bit more liberal. That shift is quite worrying, isn't it, in terms of the left becoming a more authoritarian instrument in society? It's very strange. Um, I can't stand hypocrisy. Um, and so, it, of course, it, it's troubling when anyone advocates for censorship. And as you say, it used to be really the Christian right who were going after art, uh, you know, hip hop, for example, film, things like that. Um, and we've done almost a full 180, wherein it's the left who are trying to censor anyone who doesn't tow their preferred narrative, um, who doesn't support their politics. And it's really, it's scary because they don't seem to see the big picture. And you can see this in terms of what happened on Twitter and what their response was, because I and others tried to warn them, you know, to their benefit, to everyone's benefit, to say, you know, you're not always going to be in power. Like right now, you're on the so-called right end of the political spectrum, not literally the right, but, you know, the correct end, um, the, the popular end, the mainstream end. Um, your words are supported. Your views are supported. But what makes you think that that's permanent? What makes you think that someone else won't be in power next year and that they'll want to censor you? And you supported censorship and you advocated against free speech and now you don't have it. And now you're the one who's being persecuted. You know, for example, now you, you thought you had this permanent power on, on Twitter, for example, on social media, online to control the conversation. Now, suddenly you're faced with different opinions. I mean, they're not being censored at this point, but they're behaving as though they are because they have to deal with criticisms and, and challenges and people who don't wholeheartedly agree with everything they tweet. But, you know, it's like, oh, did the tables turn just like we said they would? <laughs> just like we tried to warn you about? You know, I say this to feminists all the time because it makes me so angry that so many feminists refuse to support free speech. They'll support free speech for them, but for no one else. And they don't get it. And it drives me insane. Like, I, so many feminists are essentially woke, you know, yeah. are essentially 
enmeshed in woke politics, except when it comes to the issue of gender identity. And then, you know, speech for women, speech for women. And I I support free speech for women. And I'll I'll say, yes, I want to advocate for free speech for women, but not just for women and not just on this issue. That is not how this works. Yeah. And I, I truly don't understand how they don't how they don't see that, that you can just fight for your own speech, but for no one else's. Yeah, I just think that is such an essential point. I mean, in in many ways, that is the key point of freedom of speech. I mean, the first principle of freedom of speech is that if you want to enjoy it yourself, you have to defend it for everybody, as you say, including for people who you really hate, whose ideas you hate. You know, it's more than 200 years since Thomas Paine said that if you want to make your own liberty secure, you must guard even your enemy from oppression. I mean, genuinely liberal thinkers have known this for a very long time, and it drives me mad as well when people don't realize how important that is. I think the, the feminist example is a good one because here in the UK over the past few years, lots of gender critical feminists have found themselves being blacklisted from universities, being no platformed because their ideas are apparently dangerous and fascistic and so on. And the truth of the matter is that they are being banned from campuses under rules that they themselves have supported in the past Mm -hmm. when they were being aimed at Uh, literal fascists or people on the far right or misogynistic speech. That's also been targeted in British universities as well. And some feminists either turned a blind eye to that or actively supported it. And it's the perfect example because they're now being swept up in censorious rules and regulations that they themselves uh, uh, backed in the past. So it's a, a really salient lesson, I think, on the importance of defending free speech across the board. I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about feminists and following on from the point you've just made there, I wanted to ask you about what's happening in the world of TERFs, (laughs) trans-exclusionary radical feminists, the, the witches of the modern era. There is an interesting divide emerging, I think, particularly in the UK, which, as we know, is TERF Island, uh, according to some publications. <laughs> and uh, that divide is between um, the supposedly respectable wing of TERFs who um, who think that they're making the key and the important case for the right to, to talk about biological sex and to defend same-sex rights. And they rather look down their noses on people like Kelly J. Keene, otherwise known as Posey Parker. They might even look down their noses at you to a certain extent. I, I don't know who they see as rabble rousers, um, too willing to rub shoulders with people on the right, too willing to go on Fox News. There has become a bit of a purity battle between sections of turfdom. I, I wonder, have you followed that? And, and what's your view on that? I have followed that. And I've been enmeshed in that. And I've been cancelled by, you know, countless feminists because of my willingness to speak up for free speech for everyone, um, including anti-feminist speech, as, as they might call it. Um, and, you know, I, I'm willing to talk to all sorts of people across the political spectrum. And I'm not just saying that, like, oh, I'm so generous, you know. This is how we learn, you know. I've learned... Yeah so much about people and the world and politics and changed my mind about a lot of things from exposure to different views um, and people who I would have written off, you know, five, 10 years ago. 
And I think that that feminists who who won't talk to different kinds of people, people they might label right wing, whether or not they actually are right wing is up for debate. Um, I find these these categories of left and right sort of don't make much sense anymore. But, you know, they they would gain something by talking to these people. Um, But I don't think they want to. Like, I think that the point of refusing to speak to you know, people that they label right, whether that's Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro. Um, I don't know. Some of them even seem to think that Joe Rogan is right wing, which I think is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably get this accusation too, despite the fact that you're clearly not right wing. I think that they do it for the same reasons people refuse to engage with me in good faith, which is to dehumanize. It's so that you don't really have to consider these people as human beings who might actually be well-intentioned. It's preferable to say, this person is bad and evil. I don't want anything to do with them. It's easier to just hate them and to refuse to engage with any of their words or who they are as a full human being um, than it is to sit down and have a conversation with them and be forced to admit that maybe you actually like this person. <laughs> maybe I mean, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll find out that this person is an asshole or a creep, but maybe you'll like them. Maybe you'll find that you have some things in common. Maybe you'll learn that their views aren't so horrible. You know, I have friends who are Republican. I have friends who are Christian. I have friends who are pro-life. And mm. I'm... I've always been pro-choice and I think I always will be. I don't want to say that, you know, for certain, because you never know. I mean, I've changed my mind about so many things. It could happen. But I I was interested in hearing what these people had to say about abortion, about why they are pro-life. When it came down to it, I disagreed. I didn't think that those were strong or good arguments. I have a different perspective on women's bodily autonomy and sovereignty. Um but they're not necessarily some of them. I mean, not my friends, but some people who are pro-life might be shitty people, but these people are, they're good people and mm. they just see things different than me. And I don't know what more to say beyond that. I don't see why it's my responsibility to defend every single view a person that I speak with has like a person yeah. that I'm interviewed by that I interview that I'm friends with who I sit on a panel with. It's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. If these people think that they can exist in these tiny political bubbles, I think they need to get out more. It's not healthy. It's dangerous. It's created this super divided society. I mean, we see it in the U S we see it in Canada um, where people hate each other. Mm-hmm. You know, Justin Trudeau turned Canada against itself. You know, yeah. there's a we we have a more divided country than ever before because he vilified people who challenged his policies and what he was doing to people, which, you know, he he was taking away people's constitutional rights. Yeah. He froze people's bank accounts who were political dissidents. Um and he he told Canada that these people were terrorists and misogynists and Nazis and racists. And these were just regular working class Canadians. Um, I've gone off on a bit of another tangent, but, you know, the best way to, to create like a healthy, respectful society where we respect one another 
is to engage with people who are different than us and to have conversations with people and to treat one another as human beings and not as these, you know, one dimensional characters who are either good or evil. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a, a very good description of the humanizing dynamic of freedom of speech. Firstly, it makes one aware that people aren't monsters for the most part. They're actually just people who have a different point of view to to oneself sometimes. Um, and it's worth talking to them. It's worth engaging with them. It's worth having those good faith discussions about where people disagree and, and so on. Whereas, as you say, if people live in a bubble or if they live in an echo chamber, they tend to become more dogmatic. They tend to hold on to their views, not because they've tested them out in the free public realm, but simply because they presume that they are correct. And that's when they become, that's when people's views can become very ossified, almost religious, something that they uh, cleave to in a, in a very dogmatic fashion. And it does generate conflict and tension and sometimes hatred, uh, as you describe. Um, I think your points there about Canada and, and Justin Trudeau and his war on the Canadian truckers, um, that's not going off on a tangent, actually, because in fact, I wanted to ask you about some of that. You, you wrote a very good piece for Spiked earlier this year, headlined, uh, Why I Left the Left, and uh, it's, a, it's a really good argument that basically says, look, at a certain point, you just realize that we can't keep saying there are just a few bad apples on the left. We have to recognize that the left has lost the plot. It's no longer pro-working class in the way that it traditionally has been. It's no longer particularly egalitarian. It certainly isn't interested in freedom very much. It's become a, a very eccentric, woke upper middle class movement with, that has authoritarian impulses. And I wanted to ask you about that in relation to the Canadian truckers, because the thing that really disturbed me about that was the way in which large sections of the left fell in line behind Trudeau's crusade, which was just tyrannical. You mentioned there the freezing of bank accounts, which is just an extraordinary step for a government to take. Um, that was a, a very eye-opening moment, wasn't it? I mean, I know you had known for some time that the left was losing the plot, but when they fall in line behind such a horrible, illiberal crusade against working-class people who simply want the freedom to make a living, that's when we really need to have a reckoning with what the left has become. Right. And I mean, what we witnessed when the Freedom Convoy happened, when the truckers you know, got together and started fighting back against these nonsensical lockdowns and mandates was what many of us already knew, but it became glaringly obvious and undeniable that the left has become a movement of elites. Yeah. Um, the people who were framing the truckers as dangerous, as racist, as misogynist, as Nazis, as violent, you know, and they weren't any of these things. It was a peaceful protest all the way through. It was families out in the streets celebrating, singing, dancing. They had bouncy castles. Um, you know, they're having hot dogs. Like it was, it was actually very joyful and inspiring. And it made me feel hopeful about Canada for the first time in a long time. Um, it was a show of unity and a show of, of love for Canada and for Canadians. And what the left did was to spew hatred mm -hmm. and to vilify. And they all did this from inside their apartments on their computers. <laughs> you know, like these are, 
these are people who are not working class. These are it's the, you know, some people call them the pajama class. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the people who have, who can work online, who can afford to stay home, whose businesses and livelihoods are not at risk, um, who are obviously comfortable at homes. Um, you know, they have houses, they have yards. They don't have much to worry about. I mean, I would find that life depressing. Like, I want to be out and around people. You know, I'm supposedly of the the laptop class, although I think I still count as working class considering my income. <laughs> but, you know, I have a level of privilege in that regard. Um, I didn't have to worry about losing my job per se or losing my business per se. I could still continue to work online. But... For these people to vilify men and women who were fighting for the rights of everyone in Canada, these are our constitutional rights. These are our charter rights. They belong to everyone. Um, this benefits every person in Canada. Why any person would fight against their own rights is beyond me. But they just, these people demonstrated them to be themselves to be so clueless and uncaring. Um, they, they didn't know what was going on in the real world. I mean, in large part because they'd been locked up in their houses, self-imposed in my opinion, because you could have just, I mean, I left. <laughs> it's like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> but, um, you know, and glued to their algorithms, you know, they created mm. bubbles and they stayed in their bubbles and they didn't attempt to escape those bubbles to see what others were doing or thinking or experiencing or what they had to say. And they didn't want to hear it. They wanted to shut it down and they tried their best to shut it down. And I just, I find it so hypocritical and so appalling because these are the people who claim to speak for the marginalized, right? Yeah. Um, who claim to care about, you know, equality, and a claim to oppose the so-called fascists. And here they are acting like a bunch of fascists um, <laughs> and advocating authoritarianism and, and vilifying working class, marginalized people. Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike supporters is our thriving donor community. Supporters can get access to a host of perks. And I have an extra special one to tell you about. On Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining me for a special live recording of this podcast, and it is exclusive to Spiked supporters. Toby and I will be digging down into cancel culture, free speech, and much more. You'll be able to watch the recording online, plus we'll also be taking questions from the audience. So if you're already a Spiked supporter, you can register for the live podcast now in the Spiked Supporters Hub. If you're not a Spike supporter, you can sign up for as little as £5 a month by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Sign up today and claim your ticket for the live podcast on Monday the 19th. See you there. You know, one thing that's become clear to me over the past few years is that suddenly the mainstream left or what now passes for the left doesn't only misunderstand working class people and working class communities, which has been happening for quite some time. But as you say there, it's now actively hostile to working class people. And we see this across the board. We saw it in Canada. Uh, we saw it in the UK when lots of working class people voted to leave the European Union in 2016. And 
They were referred to as gammon, which is essentially pig meat. You know, these these stupid, unintelligent, low information voters who've ruined everything by being so uh, vulgar and, and reckless. We've seen it in the US, of course, with the basket of deplorables, Hillary Clinton's infamous phrase to describe certain people who voted for Donald Trump. And we see it across Europe as well. You know, many working class people are no longer voting for social democratic parties, which have now become the property of the upper middle classes. You can see this. It's it's measurable across Europe that um, uh, social democratic parties are now run by upper middle class people and voted in large part uh, for, by those people as well. And to my mind, one of the least surprising developments of the past decade has been the fact that working class people are, are voting for parties of the right because the left has just treated them like shit, if, you, if you'll excuse my language. But that, that is what's happened. And on, on that, I wanted to ask you what hope there is for a new kind of politics that will speak to working people, who, that will speak to people like the Canadian truckers, like people in parts of Britain who feel left behind, like those people in the United States who obviously voted for Trump, not necessarily because they love him, but because they wanted some political instrument that they might wield against the old establishment. You said in your piece for Spike on why you left the left that, you know, the pro-worker left is just not coming back. And I agree with that. I think that is now a historical artifact. That kind of left belongs in the history books and people will read about it for years, no doubt. Is there the possibility of a new kind of politics emerging that will take those people seriously? Is there a progressive strain that you think will start to treat the working classes with the respect that they deserve? Or is it going to be an uphill struggle to try and create something like that? I think that we have to let go of left and right. And I think that we have to work towards, you know, for lack of a better term, a rational center. Um, I don't think that center is a perfect term either. I sort of want to get out of this left, right, center categorization. But I mean, I think that people are desperate for that. You know, they're desperate for something real. Um, the left is not working for the working class and the right doesn't fit, you know, for a lot of people. I, if I lived in America, I probably would have voted for Trump, but I don't like Trump. Um, I don't, I don't respect Trump. I don't think he's particularly intelligent. Um, I don't think he's a, a respectable man <laughs> um, and no politician is going to be perfect. I mean, it's not reasonable to expect that you're going to have a politician that you like everything about and you agree with them on everything. They're still politicians at the end of the day after all. Um, but I think that people want something different. And I think that, I think people are desperate for authenticity, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are politicians out there that are respectable and that are fighting for something outside the left-right binary, although they have to work within it to a certain extent. You know, Tulsi, um, I like Andrew Yang a lot. Um, in Canada, our conservative party isn't particularly right wing. We've never had a strong right in Canada or not as long as I've been alive in any case. We have a far right party, the NDP. We have the Liberal Party, which is probably center left, I suppose. And the conservative party, 
you know, our, the conservative party isn't like a pro-life party. It's not a religious party. It's not the same as the Republican party in the U.S. And so there's members of the conservative party that I do like, I do like what they're saying. And I respect their positions on a lot of things, including free speech um, and including, you know, things like, I, you know, I, I climate change, um, <laughs> our charter rights and freedoms, online hate speech, you know, they've opposed Justin Trudeau's bill in attempt to curb so-called online hate speech. In other words, his attempt to curb free speech. But I think that there's a backlash to mm. the woke yeah. um, happening right now. And I think that those people are becoming louder and bolder. And I think that we will be able to advocate for something new and, and different. Um, and I'm not fighting to change the minds of progressives and, and, you know, the, the anti free speech feminists anymore. I've, I've sort of given up on them to a certain extent. I tried for many, many, many years and those people seem attached to their narratives and they want to be stuck in their ways. So leave them there and we can move on without them. Maybe they'll come around at a certain point. Um, but I'm not going to waste my time haranguing them. And, and the feminists who tell me or Posey Parker or whoever it may be, you know, you can't, you can't ally with the right. Like you can't work with these right wing people. You have to just fight for the left. Why? These people hate me. These people disrespect me. These people don't respect women. It's pathetic. Yeah. It's pathetic. It's like begging an abusive boyfriend to take you back. Why would I want anything to do with the Democrats? Why would I want anything to do with the Liberal Party? Why would I ever vote for a party who claims they cannot define what a woman is? It is yeah. insulting. Yeah, it really is. And we see that with um, feminists in the UK, including gender critical feminists who are making very good arguments about same-sex rights and same-sex spaces and so on, who just cannot let go of the Labour Party or the broader Labour left, even though the Labour Party is led by a man, Keir Starmer, who cannot answer the question, can a woman have a penis? He cannot give a straight answer to that question. And, and if a party leader cannot answer that, the easiest question one could be asked, the answer is no, uh, then you do wonder why they would trust him on anything else. So it is a bit tragic. And I think it will become a larger fault line as the trans issue possibly works itself out. I think we will see a larger divide between those in the gender critical movement who really have uh, subscribe to the ideas of freedom and broader debate and rational discussion. And those who I think were involved in gender critical ideas because they were defending a particular feminist left ideology. And I think that will become an interesting split. Um, just a couple more quick questions for you, Megan. Uh, you mentioned wokeness there. I did want to ask you about wokeness. I agree with you that there is a brewing backlash. There are millions of people in the Western world who would like to see the ideology of wokeness taken down a peg or two. I've always thought that, you know, any political party that was to come out swinging against the ideology of wokeness while also making a serious case for improving the economic conditions of working communities, any party that combined those two uh, worldviews would, would probably do incredibly well. The Conservative Party here in the UK try to do it, but fail spectacularly. And I don't know of any other party that's actually doing that at the moment. Um, but on wokeness, 
You're absolutely right that we've got to move beyond left and right. It's like using a, a dead language to navigate yourself through a new society. The left and right stuff just doesn't work. But in relation to wokeness, one of the things I find particularly frustrating is the way that that wokeness is understood by many people to be left wing. That's what it means to be left wing. Whereas, of course, people like you and I would would see wokeness as in some ways being anti the traditional left, anti the idea of being pro-working class and pro-freedom and pro-equality. The real problem with wokeness is that it's just very reactionary, isn't it? It's a, it's a problematic ideology that will actively make people's lives worse. I think so. I mean, part of the problem with wokeness is that it's very religious. You know, we're dealing with mm. something very similar to a cult. You know, you have your positions, you have your mantras, you have your language. These are the things you say. You can't diverge from these these mantras. And anyone who questions the mantras is ostracized. Um, you're not allowed to think. It's an anti-critical thinking ideology. And it's a nonsense ideology. And it refuses personal accountability. It refuses, you know, take charge of your own life and make it better. I think it's very victimizing. Um, and I think it's very unempowering, um, which is strange because so much of that ideology came out of third wave feminism, which used the word empowering a lot, really overused the word empowering to describe things like, you know, we were told in third wave feminism that selling sex could be empowering. Mm that pornography could be empowering for women, that stripping could be empowering for women, that wearing stilettos was empowering for women, all these silly sexist things. And, you know, that's not to say like wear high heels if you want, but it's not feminist. You're doing that because it makes you look hot. Like, just be <laughs> honest. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look attractive. I mean, it's just, it's so limiting. It makes people unintelligent. It seems to make people angry. It seems to rest on hatred, which is ironic because these people, I mean, you'll hear trans activists, people who are supposedly allies of the trans community saying things like love is love and like no platform for hate. They held those signs, no platform for hate outside my my talk at the Toronto Public Library about women's rights. Mm. And they're being so hateful. They're mm. threatening people. They're being violent in some cases. They're harassing, they're censoring, they're saying horrible, disgusting things about us. Um, and they seem entitled to that hate and they seem to have reframed it as love and acceptance, <laughs> which is strange. But I just, I think these people are not happy people mm. um, because I think that what makes you happy and comfortable with yourself is personal autonomy and freedom and, you know, <laughs> developing skills and living a happy, healthy life. And I think wokeness sort of promotes something opposite of that. I mean, we could get into all sorts of things like fat acceptance and, um, you know, you feel depressed or anxious, so you should take a bunch of pills and lie on the couch for the rest of your life instead of, you know, trying to change your diet and go to get some exercise and maybe try to do some things in your life or learn some skills that will make you feel proud of yourself and feel confident in life. I think it's very unhealthy. And if I were a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> it would seem as though it was attempting to breed a population of unhealthy people with low libidos who aren't going to find love and happiness, who aren't going to reproduce and who aren't going to be able to fight back if they need to. They're taking 
I'm going to sound like a crazy person now. So, you know, take away all their guns. Justin Trudeau is trying to pass this anti-gun legislation in Canada, which I find quite hilarious because there is no gun problem in Canada. It's not like the U.S. where there are shootings all the time. It's just not a thing that really happens in Canada. But even if it were, he's, he's, he's banning hunting rifles. He's banning guns that people use to shoot birds. <laughs> like, it's really strange. And, you know, you know, the Liberal Party is working to make it easier to um, kill yourself, you know, medically assisted mm-hmm. suicide so that he's, he's working to make it so that minors can consent to medically assisted suicide if they're depressed, for example. It's just really all quite sick. And it's not leftist. It's not progressive. It's about doing what's cheap for the government, but also profitable. Um, you know, say with harm reduction, like give everybody free drugs, but don't provide any mental health support. Don't make any mental health facilities. Don't provide beds where people can go, where they can get clean. Just give them clean heroin or opiates. It's, it just, it's all, it doesn't look good. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, well, the the euthanasia stuff in Canada, I just find so creepy and disturbing. And as you say, the idea that this kind of thing is in any way left wing, you know, the left used to be about fighting for a better life for everyone, not about killing people who are in some way seen as a burden on society or their sickness is, is too much. We can't cope with it. Let's just dispatch them off this planet. I just find it horrifying. Um, my last question for you, which follows on nicely from what you've just said there. Uh, firstly, I agree with you on the unhappiness of woke people. I think that's so striking and, and very palpable. And there's a bitterness. And, and very often, as, as you point out, uh, under the banner of opposing hate, and opposing hate speech, these people will engage in the most hateful form of activity. And J.K. Rowling is a perfect example of this. She's subjected to rape threats and death threats and uh, vile abuse every day by the kind of people who probably have the rainbow flag in their bio and say love is love and um, all that kind of crap. Um, I think one thing I wanted to ask you, you struck a, a little bit of a note of despair in in what you were just saying there. Um, I actually don't think one needs to be a conspiracy theorist to to think that there are probably just instinctive efforts by our societies, not a conspiracy, but a kind of instinctive drive to, I think, pacify the population. And you do see that in the way in which more and more young people are on pacifying drugs for so-called mental disorders or ADHD. You say see it in the way in which uh, young people are discouraged from being brave, discouraged from taking risks and encouraged to live in a bit of a cotton wool society. There are, I think, instinctive efforts by the rulers of society to have, I don't know, a metaphorically lobotomized public because it benefits them more. And I think you also see this in in the idea of universal basic income, which would essentially be about putting millions of people out to pasture so that they can just live their sad little lives while the elites will be the productive wing of society. So there is a lot of that stuff going on. And following on from that, we both struck a note of despair there. I, I did want to ask you as a final question, whether you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic about where politics is going, because we have talked about 
the good things that are happening. Working class communities are standing up for themselves. More people are opening their eyes to the importance of freedom of speech. But there are also, as we've described, bad things happening in our societies as well. So where do you fall down on on feeling hopeful about society becoming more progressive and free and equal or concerned that things might go in a, a bad direction for some time to come? Well, I feel both ways. So I feel that I feel hopeful about politics um, because we can see that people are really getting sick of Trudeau and his liberal party and of the Democrats and their lies and their hypocrisy and their obvious elitism. Um, And we can see more support for, you know, I like Ron DeSantis. Mm. Um, We can see support for uh, conservative or, or, you know, politicians who are more supportive of freedom and rights and who are pushing back against all this stuff. Um, people are getting really tired of the woke stuff and of the nonsense, to be frank. You know, what we see in the news on almost a daily basis should be satire, but it's real. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like bizarro world come to life. And people are just not having it anymore. Mm. And so I think that's positive. At the same time, I do worry that people are so complacent and that they trade in their rights for conveniences. Um, they're like, well, you know, it's convenient for me to find a date on a dating app or it's convenient for me to just jack off to porn. It's convenient for me to just order Uber Eats and, you know, stare at my Facebook feed or watch Netflix all night and not really try to do much more with my life or not really try to challenge myself or break out of that, that bubble. Um, you know, I, I'm from Vancouver and Vancouver people are very much in their bubbles. They very much don't want out. And I think I was like that for a long time. Um, and you think of yourself as a very, progressive, open-minded person. And yet you spend all of your time with people who are just like you yeah, and who are relatively privileged in the world. And who really don't know very much about the world, but presume to know everything about the world mm. and who are very snobbish, um, you know, who, who look down their noses at people who are different than them, but pretend not to. Um, I'm worried that people are so dependent on technology and so comfortable with that dependence. You know, what happened over the past two years was scary because so many people went along with nonsense. So many people put on their masks. People are still, if you go to San Francisco, people are still wearing their masks (laughs) voluntarily, voluntarily. Mm -hmm. I remember people saying, you know, I'm just going to keep my mask on forever. It keeps my face warm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, the amount of people who just accepted a loss of rights because they were handed some money, right? In Canada, we all got COVID money. People were being given like $2,000 a month. And I think it's like, shut up money. <laughs> like, and now you're, now you're, you're at home, you're comfortable, you have your money, you've got all your stuff. Like Amazon is delivering all your stuff to you daily. You don't need to leave the house. We're helping you. This is for your health. It's for your own good. And people went along and didn't ask questions and then made the people who did ask questions out to be criminals. And it was really frightening. Megan Murphy, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you again. 
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.